No problem. And unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. This is always kind of exciting for me, at least when we're launching into a new project. Uh, we just did that recently with Mountains and Waters Sutra on Thursdays, and now we get to do it with, uh, with Jukai. Uh, one of the benefits from my standpoint of shifting from Reb Anderson's being upright, which we've used for a good number of years now, and uh, to take a very different approach. That's, that will remain a highly, highly suggested reading for anybody who's working towards Jukai. I gotta close the door here. Because, because it really does lay out Jukai and the ceremony and the precepts and all of that. So it's, it's still really vital. But the, the Satipatthana Sutra, to my mind, based on my own experience, is really, uh, it was foundational to my own practice. And it just, it, it, I, I've taught it before, not in, not as a, uh, as a Jukai class, but just as part of our normal teachings. Uh, but that was a long, long time ago. And I thought, you know, it's time to, to go at it again. And I think it's the sort of practice that anybody who's working towards Jukai and obviously from the attendance here, uh, for those that have already gone past that point. It's, it's a vital practice to traversing this way that we are on uh, for reasons that, uh, that hopefully will become more and more manifest as we go through this. If they don't, uh, schedule a docus on immediately because we need to talk. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. If if you if you're plugged into this as a practice guide, and it is a practice, it's not something you're studying and memorizing stuff. And it's there, like anything. There's there is a conceptual piece to it, but it, at its heart, it's practice. It's something uh, to get any benefit at all. You have to do this. And I'll try as we go through this to, to offer suggestions. And of course, Anulayo himself and his text is, is kind of doing that as well as to how you make this part of your, your life, your way of living your life. So that you're all of us now really plugged in. It's almost like we're running on static electricity. And now with this, you can plug into the source. 
<laughs> and you get kind of a jolt. But uh, uh, it's it, it's really it can invigorate your practice. So that's why I kind of like the metaphor of plugging into the source. So enough of of my uh, just introductory uh, random thoughts. Not that random, but somewhat. Uh, now I'll I'll start referring to my notes and uh, and we'll we'll start through. Uh, and and I guess the other uh, piece to this to make you aware of is it'll probably be several months before we actually get into the this, the heart of the sutra, mindfulness of beginning with mindfulness of the body. There's a lot of foundation work to be built in Analayo's text itself. He's somewhere just past 100 pages into it before he gets to mindfulness of the body. So that's an indicator of, of uh, what kind of foundation gets laid here. But it, it will be uh, effort that's very worthwhile. So in terms of your practice with this, certainly, you know, as you go through the text, uh, if you're uh, like me and you're going to just keep going at your own pace, uh, not waiting for for this class to, at its snail's pace to uh, uh, to guide your practice, uh, you know, you'll be fine. I think uh, if you just go through the hundred some pages at your own pace. And then as you come into the actual practice itself, the mind beginning with mindfulness of the body, uh, start to engage it. And, and you know, kind of reach out to me, Dokasans, or, or uh, I don't always reference them in my weekly email, email but uh, they can always be scheduled. So as you think that that would be helpful to you as you uh, engage this practice, please reach out and uh, we'll get there as we get there. Uh, so all that we're gonna look at this today and next month and the following month, I'm sure, will just be laying the foundation. So mindfulness, and the proper way of putting it into practice are topics of central relevance for anyone keen to tread the Buddhist path to liberation. And, and Satipatthana, as I said, is a matter of practice. So this links it up with Dogen immediately. For Dogen, it's practice enlightenment. Satipatthana is the direct path to realization. So it really does practice enlightenment. There's no, don't come into this thinking, well, this is Theravadan teaching. Why are we even looking at this? Our school is grounded in Dogen. Dogen's path is grounded in this 
It's important to understand that. And again, hopefully as we go, go further with it, the reasons for that, the truth of that will become clear to you. You know, one of the things we're going to look at, I think this morning, we'll get to uh, this notion of clearly knowing. So hopefully that becomes something that becomes clearer and clearer to you in terms of the role that this plays for the Buddhist path, regardless of the particular sect that one might be following. They all incorporate mindfulness practice. And this is the heart of mindfulness practice, the Satipatthana Sutra. So one is going to struggle mightily to practice mindfully without a strong basis in this sutra. This is a simple fact of it. And hopefully that truth will become clear to you as you work further with it. So both the, the starting and the concluding section of this sutra has a passage that states that Satipatthana constitutes the direct path to realization. And for us having just done this, the Jikoji Sashin, the direct path to realization is Genjo Koa, the realized universe. To use one of the translations of, of the term Genjo Koa, this is a direct path to realization. So it's, it's a way of, of pointing to it's very serious. This is the real deal here. And coming in, I think it's helpful to have a general understanding of certain mental qualities that are instrumental for this practice. How does one enter into this practice? Because it is very much about mental discipline. There is discipline involved. And these qualities, there are four. There's diligence. There's clearly knowing. There's mindfulness, of course. And lastly, uh, freedom from desires and discontents also known as hindrances. We've looked at those in the past. So that's one, one thing to kind of just hold in mind. We're, we're gonna be back to that in a little bit here. Looking ahead to this, this first section of, of uh, the, the actual practice, uh, mindfulness of the body. The range of contemplation of the body proceeds from mindfulness of breathing to postures 
activities, analysis of the body into its anatomical parts and elements, you know, the consti what, uh, what constituents make up the body. And then last, but certainly not least, contemplating its impermanence. You know, the section of the sutra that talks about contemplation of corpses, of rotting flesh. That is our nature. So going all the way from focus on the breath, which is kind of uh, Zen meditation 101 at many practice centers. So that's one way that the teachings of this sutra are incorporated into formal Zen practice. Now, not all centers use that. At some centers, they just throw you right into shikantaza, just sitting. But the reason why centers begin people typically with working with the breath is because it's a helpful way to get engaged in the practice of meditation to get your grounding. And, and it's also a helpful way to get yourself engaged in the practice of mindfulness, more generally speaking. So these are practices that can be used in meditation, but most importantly, they're practices that are to be engaged in throughout your daily activities, to be mindful in your life is what you're trying to develop through this discipline so that it becomes just part of your everyday being to approach life mindfully. Because if that doesn't become part of your practice with the aid of a guide like this, well, it won't happen. And if it doesn't happen, I think you know the answer to that. You know, then practice will be kind of a, a hit and miss uh, proposition with maybe probably a lot more misses than hits. It really won't be part of your being, or I mean, it'll be part of it, but it won't be the, the major part. For that to happen, it has to become part of your life pretty much constantly. Not that you don't stray off, but from the straying off, you come back and you know how to come back. And you have the motivation to come back because the practice, as is usually the case in, in all forms of Buddhism, the practice kind of reinforces itself. It's helpful to have a teacher and Sangha to, to also uh, offer their encouragement, but it has to begin with you. Or, doesn't happen. You've got the support. 
given the makeup of this Sangha, you've got a lot of support. And I'm certainly always available. But it begins with you. And this is a path that's being set forth in this sutra, in this teaching, that will, as I suggested, help you to really engage, to empower your practice in ways that can carry it forward day after day after day. So the kind of progression that takes place with mindfulness of the body, we also find with the other aspects of, of mindfulness practice. The next two parts after the body are feelings and mind. And then the final one lists five types of dharmas. Dharmas here pointing to kind of baskets of teachings. So the hindrances, the aggregates, the sense spheres, the awakening factors, and finally the four noble truths. Those are the five dharmas that make up the fourth aspect of this uh, mindfulness path. And the sutra has a refrain that's, that recurs throughout the text, which, uh, which is stating that satipatthana, this mindfulness practice, covers both internal and external phenomena. So it's a depiction of reality in, gen in, in its totality, not just limited to yourself. And it's concerned with their arising and their passing away. So the teachings of impermanence run throughout the entire thing. just like the uh, mindfulness of the body ends up with, with uh, the focus on the impermanence. From there on, I mean, you get to the feelings and an important part of the insight there by, by uh, focusing your mindful awareness on feelings is their fleeting nature. And it's important, given the impact they have on our lives, to have that clear knowing, to get that. Which isn't to say that we, we shouldn't enjoy pleasant feelings. You know, there's no admonition involved here. It's just saying, be aware that it's impermanent, it's very fleeting. See it as it is. Rather than being devastated when there's the inevitable shifting of it. 
And then by the time we get to the fourth aspect of, of the five dharmas, now we're really moving into the dharma teachings. But mindfulness practice is leading us to that. So that by the time we start looking at these teachings, like the, like the awakening factors and the uh, Four Noble Truths, we're, we're now in a disciplined place where we can really enter deeply into them. We can get them rather than just understand the concepts behind them. So that's where this path, there is kind of a progressive nature to it. There is and there isn't. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, momentarily. So as Adelayo expresses it, mindfulness should be established merely for the sake of developing bare knowledge and for achieving continuity of awareness. There's this, while it is such a vital practice, but yet there's, there's this important sense that it should fit like a, like a glove uh, fitted to your hand because it is such a natural overlay to your life. It shouldn't feel forced. If it does, that's another good, good time to, to reach out uh, and, uh, and talk about it. It should feel like it's just being established for the sake of developing bare knowledge so you're aware of, of what you're doing. Bare knowledge and achieving continuity of awareness so that it has some, some staying power. You develop it as kind of a, uh, a natural part of your life. If you're struggling with it, that's that, that's a problem. It needs to, to be well fit, and it should be. It's its nature to, to fit uh, all, all sizes. It's one of those articles of clothing. One size fits everybody because of its, its form-fitting qualities. So that's an important side to this. And it takes place free from any dependence or clinging. So it's not like it becomes uh, uh, you're, you're setting up some dependence. It should feel like you're just naturally more fully engaged in your life as a result. And certainly no clinging.
So Adelayo talks some about the progressive aspect of, of these practices, uh, saying that the body contemplations recommend themselves as a foundational exercise for building up a basis of mindfulness, while the, the final contemplation of the Four Noble Truths covers the experience of Nibbana, to use the Theravadan term, the realized universe, to use the Soto Zen term. But it begins, just like with a student coming to a Zen center for the first time, with sitting in silence and being mindfully aware of the breath and going from there. So we all understand that there is this sense of progression, but in truth, each of the steps can also be seen as a direct path to realization. This is something from, from the Zen tradition uh, that resonates with us. That, you know, just this is it. If just this is the breath, that's it. It's not about a progression to the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. So there's that side to it as well, which is there. And there's the progressive side. That if you follow this path as it's laid out, the path is introducing you to the myriad aspects of your life, starting with the body, but then moving to feelings, to mind, where mind, you, you now can engage with, you know, things like lust and anger and anxiety, as well as, you know, maha, which we've talked about going back several months when we looked at uh, Dogen's Maha Prajnaparamita, Makahanya Harharamita. We can have all of those mindful awarenesses. So when we're in Maha, we could clearly know we're in Maha. It's clear because of our mindful awareness. Without clinging or grasping, just aware. So a central characteristic of Satipatthana, and this also connects nicely, I think, with, uh, with our Soto Zen practice, it's awareness of phenomena as they are, as they occur, what's right in front of us. <clears throat> as the opening of the Diamond Sutra, which we recently studied, 
depicting that for opening chapter talks about uh, the Buddha's uh, daily routine, setting the stage for his conveyance of this of the teaching of the Diamond Sutra. And it talked about how he you know, does his alms rounds, takes care of things, and then sits and puts his attention on what's right in front of him. That's a powerful teaching phrase. That's kind of what's being pointed to here. A central characteristic of Satipatthana is awareness of phenomena as they are and as they occur, what's right in front of us, as they are. Without a disciplined mind, disciplined in the practice of mindful awareness, we can't do that. It doesn't naturally happen for us. And this is why, as he puts it, a flexible and comprehensive development of Satipatthana should encompass all aspects of experience. That's why we have these different stages of Satipatthana from, from body through feelings to mind and then to dharmas finally. Because if we're going to be able to do this practice, meeting each thing as it arises, as it occurs, we need to have a practice that, that uh, that offers to us the opportunity to engage this in all aspects of our life. It's not limited to just being with our breath, to understanding our impermanent nature, that we arise and we perish, as do all things. It covers the entirety, maha. So this is a universal teaching. And because of that, another important point to bear in mind is that the earlier stages, like practicing with the body, practicing with the breath, are not just steps that can then be tossed aside once you've moved on to feelings and to mind. Uh, they're always part of the practice because each part contains the entirety of it. So there's a, a value to seeing as a progression, but there's also a, a danger that when we see it that way, we think, well, once we've passed it, uh, now I've got that under my belt, I can move on. Now, these are practices that are always part of our mindful engagement. I think everybody, no matter how long we've been sitting, understands that relative to our breath. The value of coming back to that. It's a pretty good indicator of what's going on with you right now. The connectedness between breath, feelings, mind, clear. So how could you just say, well, I'm beyond that now. I don't do that anymore. <coughs> I did that the first couple of years. 
That's something you always do. That's part of this practice because it's part of your life. As long as you're living life in this particular form, it's always going to be pretty fundamental for you. So it's a good idea to be able to connect your awareness there from time to time. It's a good way of checking in. How are you doing, Dean? Check my breath is a good indicator. <laughs> That's a good first step. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel a little stressed, a little breathing up here. So the, the mutually supportive trait of all these practices we're going to cover. So at some point in time down the road, when we've covered the whole thing, uh, you know, hope it, it will become something that as soon as you enter into the practice, you, you really begin to feel like you're engaging the whole thing not just focusing on any one item. And when it reaches that point, then you can really use it to engage with your life as a whole. So whatever's coming up, you can immediately just encounter it as it is. And it is an immediate response, but it can only happen <clears throat> if we do this work of practicing, of really doing it in a disciplined way. We don't like discipline because it feels restrictive. That's why the comment about it shouldn't feel restrictive. It should feel natural. It should feel natural, but there is this sense of, of discipline too. It's like the analogy that the Buddha used about the, the strings on the lute. Not too tight, not too disciplined, but not too loose. To have that proper attunement for your life. So just like there's there's a, a negative response that people will have, and it's I, I I can relate to it myself to certain Christian notions that kind of went uh, off the ranch, something like repentance, for instance. Uh, so to be able to to reintroduce the same term. Uh, but to try to cut through uh, the emotional response to it, which is, like I said, very understandable. So there's that piece to it with discipline, too. You know, we have very negative ideas of discipline. Sister Mary with the ruler. <laughs> Who's signing up for that? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's that's not the discipline we're talking about here 
actually disciplined and fits so nicely with the practice of mindfulness because you're just aware. You become aware of the role of mindfulness and it becomes natural. It feels like, well, this is the way uh, I am. And, but we have to kind of grow into that, practice into it, and then it will be second nature. You can't imagine any other way of living. So the basic truths of Buddhism will leave the conceptual realm and they become part of, they're interwoven at the deepest level with your experience of your life. You get it all the way down. So as part of this process, Analayo says that the, the development of awareness with any particular meditation technique will automatically result in a marked increase in one's general level of awareness. So setting aside, you know, what what the particular technique is, or in the context of the Satipatthana, whether you're working with the body, feelings, mind, uh, developing any of these awarenesses results in a marked increase in your general level of awareness, which is why continued practice, continued discipline in this has the kind of effect on your overall life I've been describing. And it begins to come naturally. So there's the discipline aspect to it, but it no longer feels that way. It's like sitting practice becomes for, for many of us, we just do it. Is there a discipline there in getting up and and spending 30, 40 minutes on your cushion? Sure. But at a certain point, does it feel like it? Am I bragging about how disciplined I am? Any more than I'm bragging about, I brush my teeth every morning too. I take a shower every morning. Pat myself on the back. Boy, that's a lot of discipline there. I get out of bed every morning. <laughs> The discipline begins there. <laughs> I don't just lay in bed all day. <laughs> I get dressed. <laughs> all that stuff. So, I mean, the practice of mindfulness, all kidding aside, really starts to take on that flavor that, well, this is just what you do. And all the other parts of your life can stay just, just the way they are. But you're, the way you engage them just goes to a deeper place now because of your practice of Satipatthana. 
the merging of difference and unity. So you're bringing this practice of unity into everything, all the different aspects of your life, moment after moment after moment. So this is a way of practicing Sandokai. And it's the fact it's a practice. I mean, Sandokai is, you know, I, I love that text, but it's not a, a practice guide the way this is. So to, re, to have texts like Sandokai to inspire us, but to have practice manuals like the Satipatthana Sutra is pretty wonderful. All of a sudden, you know, this brings Sandokai to life as we begin to practice this. So it's an important thing to bear in mind as well for we of the uh, Mahayana Soto Zen tradition. It's the same teaching. And what ends up happening is through this practice, these other teachings, the more esoteric ones like Sandokai, like Genjo Koan, start to open up to us a little more. Because unless they've really sunk in, they're going to remain a mystery. And this practice is very much about letting them sink in deeply because you're living it. And it's a step-by-step uh, guide. So it's kind of uh, in the pattern. Uh, maybe maybe the self-help uh, uh, movement of the 20th century uh, found its, its prototype here. I don't know. <laughs> but it's it literally, it tells you how to do this, sets the program. But because we're in the realm of Maha, you know, it can't be contained by any particular teaching. The teachings are just taking us into the realm where we can then open our eyes and go, aha, Maha. <laughs> this is just a path that gets us into that realm. So it is kind of a yellow brick road. And you meet all kinds of interesting characters on the way. <laughs> so Alayo has an interesting observation that I wouldn't have been aware of uh, that I, I find uh, uh, points to the truth of, of what I've been saying about whether you take this whole thing as a progression or, or not. 
he says that uh, that uh, uh, some meditation teachers place a strong emphasis on covering all four sadipatanas in one's practice. And of course, that's what we're effectively doing with, with this class. We're going to cover the whole thing and try to do it all justice. But there are also present-day meditation teachers, he says, that focus on the use of a single meditation technique. Because the development of awareness with any particular meditation technique will automatically result in a marked awareness, in a marked increase in one's general level of awareness. So it's different ways of working with this too. So I guess that's just kind of setting it up that uh, that if you patiently stay with us to work through this whole sutra and you find that there's just one practice from it that you want it's okay or if you find that you love the whole thing you want to practice in its entirety that's okay by implication, you know, if you find segments, maybe the segment, the third part. Yep, I'm getting a message. My internet connection's unstable, but it's gone. So you can focus on just certain aspects, but you know, I think in order to to even reach that point, uh, there's something to be said for covering the whole thing, and then you know, feel free at that point to to work within it in whatever way seems to uh, to work best for you. There's no just one acceptable, you know, established official way to do this. But I think everybody seems to be in agreement that any single meditation practice from this whole scheme being laid out in this sutra is capable of leading to deep insight. So that's important because you don't have to wait till you get to the, the fourth aspect and the Four Noble Truths. That you can approach each piece to this with that sense that, that that is the whole thing. Every step, every moment, every experience is the whole thing. You know, Genj, back to Genjo Koa, the realized universe. It's realized in each moment. And Satipatthana is the same way. But as Dogen said, you have to practice, you have to fan yourself. So this is uh, a fan that's been created. This worked very well for a lot of people for a very long time.
And you know, just speaking from my own experience, it's been very played a huge role in uh, in my own practice. So each each Satipatthana, as you'll see or as you've already discovered, does have a, a somewhat different character, and therefore can can kind of be seen as serving potentially a, a slightly different purpose. One way of looking at this, uh, which isn't to be taken too rigidly, uh, but it sees each of these four satipatthanas, body, feeling, mind, and uh, dharmas, as corresponding to particular aggregates. Uh, remembering the five aggregates of form, feelings, perceptions, impulses, consciousness, with, uh, with, uh, with uh, form, feeling, and consciousness matching the first three. Form, of course, is body, it's physical nature. So that, that seems pretty clear cut. Feeling, well, the second aspect is feelings. And then consciousness, is mind, Vishnana. And then that leaves the, uh, the, uh, the, the two remaining aggregates of cognition and impulses or volitions, which would correspond to the fourth of dharmas. But again, it can't be, I mean, that can be helpful, but it's don't go too far with that. Because actually, uh, if you'll remember the fourth uh, foundation, part, part of that is the aggregates and their entirety fits into that. So, you know, these are just kind of little pointers of some correlations, but not to be taken too far. But there are other ways where this can be used as a guide to our practice based on where we might be at that that can be helpful. Uh, and And we'll look at that. But one thing uh, that that I think we've kind of touched on, but just to reinforce it, is that, all four of the Satipatthanas have the aim of dissolving the illusion of your substantiality. They bring us to investigating thoroughly each aggregate of form, feelings, perceptions, impulses, consciousness, to the point where no more I can be found. The dropping off of body and mind in Dogen terminology. Now, some of these helpful guides for individual uh, uh, hindrances that people may be working with. Uh, it's been suggested that, that the first two foundations, body and feeling contemplation, uh, should be the main field of practice for those who tend towards craving. 
uh, have that sense of, of our bodily nature as it is, up to and including its impermanence, its ultimate decay, and feelings, their fleeting nature. So if craving is an issue, that's, I think it's kind of easy to see how, how uh, those contemplations could be helpful in uh, starting to break the hold of craving. And likewise, uh, for those like me, given to intellectual speculation, we should place more emphasis on contemplating mind or dharmas, you know, the third and the fourth. See them in their true nature. Those whose uh, character is to think and react quickly can profitably center their practice on the relatively subtler contemplations of feelings or, or dharmas. Yeah, this kind of uh, uh, like, like the uh, book some years ago by, uh, was it uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Blink, about that, just the intuitive quick, you know, at a moment's glance to derive from, from, you know, obviously the role of feelings plays pretty, pretty big role there. We even use the terminology about, uh, you know, from the gut, I, I just had that gut feeling. <laughs> uh, so to, to practice mindful awareness there, and it might, might have the effect of, of helping to, to tune that back a little bit. So these are just examples of ways that the practice laid out here can, can kind of be tailored to particular uh, ways, hindrances that manifest in your own life. Because we all tend to have patterns that we drop into where our practice takes place. For some, you know, craving will loom very large. For others, maybe it's it's uh, anger. And the, the list goes on a bit, but uh, but I think you get the general message, and and <clears throat> Analayo does go through it uh, in some detail, so so you'll be able to draw that from the text. Uh, but I, I did want to spend a little more time talking about how uh, this practice can really instill within us a deep, a, a really deep awareness of the impermanence of all things.
so that observation of, of feelings, as I've been saying, to see their fleeting nature, which can really only be, be seen as it really is by putting our, our focus there to see feelings as they arise before we build the storylines around it, to see a feeling as it is. And of course, in Buddhist teachings, there, there are only three types of feelings. They're positive, negative, and neutral. Everything else, all the emotional states they create for us, is that's in the next uh, uh, contemplation of mind. You know, the pleasant feelings can lead to greed and lust and, and the, uh, the unpleasant ones lead to anger, fear. But that's, that's additional. We need to see that immediate feeling because that's where impermanence is huge. And that's where the impact on our life can be equally huge. Because if we can have that understanding of how fleeting our feelings are, and yet in spite of that, how dominant they are in our life, that becomes transformational. We're not as reactive to these ever fleeting feelings. We can, we can stay with them. rather than jumping from here to there to there. So there's a stability that, you know, from, from day one, when I started practicing, it was one of the attractive aspects of the practice that I saw in others. And I could kind of gauge how far people were along in the practice, just from a simple observation of stability in their general bearing. Because it does have that impact on one. And by stability, I don't mean sluggishness. I mean, I've known some pretty energetic practitioners. Reb Anderson would certainly fit into that category. But within that energy, there's great stability of being upright. So don't mistake stability for, for just uh, stillness in that physical sense. That one can be very active but active because the bodhisattva path has stability wired through it. So to practice with feelings It's a good example of how one, one uh, side of the contemplations being, uh, being portrayed here 
can can uh, can be huge in allowing us to cut through hindrances, in allowing us to to realize uh, more uh, experience of being upright in our lives. And when we get to the next, you know, moving from feelings to to the mind, oh, it's kind of the same sort of idea, again, with impermanence, awareness of the ceaseless succession of states of mind. So our whole realm of subjective experience, we start to relate to it. differently. We're not as prone to just being pulled along by it. We can stay with it. We can be present with it. So when we do take action, this is where that sense and the projection of stability comes from. You know, it's, it's now not just a reactive uh, event that's taking place. It's more deeply grounded than that because it's not just an immediate response to a mental state, which is an immediate response typically to a feeling, which is an immediate response to something going on in our body. So we can see this progression from uh, through that runs through the Satipatthana. And then you get to the final set of, of uh, contemplations, the dharmas. And, you know, we're starting now to, to have the conceptual overlay of how, what, what is it we're awakening to, realizing the way to live one's life with prajna, with wisdom. Things like the awakening factors, the Four Noble Truths. Now we're ready to really get that. I, I say there's a conceptual overlay, but it's a conceptual overlay that's now going deeper than just the conceptual understanding. Because we've, we've approached these earlier stages directly. And this is also part of the refrain that runs throughout the Satipatthana, the way in which we uh, practice awareness. It's of the body in the body. So it's not a conceptual awareness. It's direct. So it's just like the instructions for working with the breath. We want to do a conceptual overlay. And in the beginning, that can be helpful. That's why counting the breath can be helpful for those that are really uh, deeply given to that sort of practice. But ultimately, to have the awareness of breath in the breath is just as, as the teaching puts it, be the breath. Your awareness of the breath is coming right from the breath. It's like there's no conceptual intermediary. The breath is just filling your universe at that moment. 
you are the breath. And the same as you move through the various contemplations, the same thing takes place. Up to through that first set of contemplations, the impermanence of the body, it's decay. I mean, that's loaded with all this conceptual overlay. That's not what this mindfulness practice is. It's about being the decay that you you get that. That's how it goes deeply into us rather than just having ideas about it. The the conceptual overlay is going to occur. That's natural. But we we have our mindfulness of that and we understand it as it is. No teacher I've encountered, although maybe a few Zen teachers have veered in this direction about trying to cut off all conceptual thought. That's, we, we're now trying to become a different type of life form. We're thinking beings. Uchiyama Roshi, for one, was very clear about that. So the conceptual overlay is going to be there. But the mindful awareness needs to go deeper. It needs to go to that state. So if it's a feeling, be the feeling. And moving on to mind, you know, if it's anger, as I've told a number of people, just be the anger, be that state. And that take that encompasses the feeling, the body, but we're we're meeting those directly as they are. And now at least in this moment, it's important to drop off the conceptual overlay, the storyline that you're feeding into that, because it's literally like feeding the fire of anger. It stokes it higher. And when you pull the fuel out and just be present with the anger, with the feeling that precedes it, with the bodily state that precedes that. So the tightness that you feel in the anger, the tightening of your whole body, you know, come all the way back to the, the opening passage about breathing, being with your breath. Just breathe in. Still keep your attention on the anger, but have that physical peace. Now you're aware of your breath. Now you're putting this practice to work on the hindrances that arise in your life. And, you know, incident by incident, you acquire a capability of working through them. But that requires diligence one of those mental qualities that's called for. Clear, clearly knowing. Clearly knowing that anger is coming up at this time. Being able to direct your mindful awareness to it. So, 
that's where this becomes a practice. It needs to become part of one's life. It's not enough just to conceptually understand it. That's a very little value. It's got to be engaged. And hopefully I've already said enough to where you can see the truth of, of Anulayo's statement that practice of, of the direct path of Satipatthana is an indispensable requirement for liberation. If you're doing this practice for liberation, it has to be engaged. And this is no different. It's, it gets to the heart of Dogen's teaching of practice enlightenment. Practice is enlightenment. That's exactly what this is saying. It's not practice to get us to a different place. It's to get us right where we are right now. This is the place. Here the way unfolds, as Dogen says. This, and when the way unfolds, that's your direct path. Dharma gates are boundless. So this 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 uh, description as a direct path draws attention, he says, to Satipatthana as the aspect of the noble eightfold path most directly responsible for uncovering a vision of things as they truly are. Because remember, mindfulness is part of the eightfold path, which puts, makes it part of the uh, four noble truths. Actually, mindfulness occurs twice in the Dharma section, that last section of the Satipatthana. It's the first of the awakening factors. And it's first for a reason. And it's a key aspect of the Eightfold Path. So it's, it's essential. That's why we're, we're going to spend however long it takes to, to go through this. In doing so, just come back in passing to, to working with, with virtue, morality, the precepts. Doing this practice is a way of, of, of being able to fully engage with that practice. Precepts is, is not something separate from mindfulness practice. In fact, without a fully developed capacity for mindfulness, one is likely to struggle with precepts. Whereas if you are mindfully aware, and this was a constant teaching of Thich Nhat Hanh, that mindfulness as this entry point to the entire practice, including precepts, 
if you're mindfully aware in that moment, that's about 98% of it right there. There may be a little more assistance you need, but basically just being aware of what we're doing at any time and having a practice that continues to create that awareness in an ongoing way. It's going to do wonders in terms of how your life becomes aligned with the harmonious uh, practice of the precepts of being with others. So that when we're impacted by feelings, mind, we're aware, rather than just immediately jumping on board, and away we go. We have that capacity to be with and not just get hooked. A term that I know Pema Chodron used to good effect, this sense of being hooked. It's a very good metaphor. That's what happens. And the way we cut through that is mindfulness. Because if you know you're being hooked, the hook, it's like the barb has been straightened out. Just like a, uh, the smart fish knows that there's a hook on that uh, lure. And I'm not going to bite on it. I'm not going after that one. But we keep biting. <laughs> the lure gets put out there and we're, we're on it. We're the dumb fish. <laughs> we need Sadi Patana. So the way this path draws us to the vision of things as they truly are, points to how it functions as really the gateway to prajna, to wisdom, to see things as they truly are. So one thing I want to make sure people leave here today with is, is just a, a, a good sense of what Satipatthana means in, in a shortened version. I think we've, uh, you know, I've spent uh, well over an hour now kind of uh, giving lots of detail about it. But in its most succinct form, it really is just attending with mindfulness. So to live a life of Satipatthana means to attend to your life with mindfulness. And as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, if you go down that path, that's kind of your GPS unit then. 
that will guide you. It'll point out to you because of its connection, it leads you to prajna. You'll be able to see where the turns are that you should make. Attending with mindfulness. And to understand as well, I guess one, one other thing I want to make sure uh, that, that you take from this is that you know, these, the list of, of contemplations that makes up the Satipatthana, it's certainly not an all-extensive list. It's not the entirety. It's not Maha. These are entry points to Maha. But because of the nature of Maha, I mean, the list is endless. You could uh, build onto it uh, endlessly. And it's important that you see that because that's part of living it, is to be able to adapt it to what's happening for you right now. Just be mindfully aware. See it as it really is. So that ultimately, as, as Analayo puts it, to speak of Satipatthana is less a question of the nature of the object that's chosen, body, feeling, mind. But rather, it's of attending to whatever situation presents itself with a balanced attitude, which is this being upright, and with mindfulness being present. You're aware and you, you enter into it being upright, not leaning away from or towards. Upright and present, aware. Whatever the object is, that's the heart of the practice. That's it. That's Satipatthana. So these practices working with mind, feelings, body, and dharma as teachings. I mean, we all know there's so many teachings. Jeez, you could pull out the five he uses and inject hundreds. And they'd all satisfy the purpose that's being filled. So, wanna actually, I'd had the thought I'd uh, I'd open this up for for discussion throughout, but I see everybody's muted and everybody's been quiet. So, <laughs> so let's uh, <coughs> excuse me. Let's open it up now before we finish up. I'm done.
So I just, um, I guess I wanted to kind of point out kind of how I kind of first experienced the Satipatthana Sutra and kind of how some of your saying kind of resonates for me kind of being, a, you know, kind of a, I guess, novice, you know, kind of Zen practitioner here. And, you know, I practiced, you know, read some things, you know, over the years and just did a lot of self-practice. And, you know, as I started to, you know, join the Sangha and it's, you know, one of the books that I read was, um, I think it was called The Art of Just Sitting um, mm, yeah. by John Dato Laurie. Yeah. And as I was reading so many of, you know, the stuff that was in the text, it was so overwhelming and, you know, hard to kind of get a grasp on it. And in the end, in the appendix was the Satipatthana Sutra. Mm. Um, and when I read that, it really, um, there were parts of it that really resonated because it was, um, you know, started very basic and I could almost recognize where I was in my practice, which was, you know, very much just watching the breath and, and not getting too much beyond that. Maybe once in a while recognizing, you know, how I felt where my body was and what was, what was present, but um, it was just kind of, you know, helpful in that regard in terms of just kind of getting a sense of, you know, this spectrum of, wow, here's where, you know, this end point that's very, right. Aspiring and, um, but kind of knowing, um, where, where I, where I am. And then the other thing that kind of came up in, in line with that was, um, you know, there are moments where, you know, as I could increase the time of my sitting and, you know, at first I could only do, you know, know, maybe two years ago, I was doing my own sitting only five minutes and it was extremely painful. And then, you know, (laughs) I could get to 10 and 15 and then a half hour. And, you know, by the time I could get to like maybe half hour, I could start to feel like things were settling and the mind was starting to calm down and, you know, the sense of things dropping away and um, actually attending the sashin, right? There's all of that sitting and, you know, eventually getting to this point where everything kind of, you know, drops away and, you know, you get the sense of maybe what, you know, the experience of, you know, not having been in a sangha for very long, what shikantanza would actually feel like and what that is. Um, but there was some sense that I was kind of white knuckling through it. It was mm-hmm. like all this stuff's coming up in my head and it's very painful. And at times it's just like, I'm just going to get up off this cushion and leave. <laughs> um, but I didn't. And, but I think one of the things that resonates as we, you talk about the Saudi Patana is kind of almost this, like it's, almost a skillful way um, to gently keep myself a bit on the cushion long enough for some of the benefits of even like shikantanza to maybe come together or to get that, that feeling as opposed to just like almost forcing myself in, uh, you know, in a way that's almost not skillful, maybe to right. like, you will do this or you, you know, almost, you know, that just kind of blind obedience versus, digesting and processing oh this is a feeling right or this is a thought that I'm having or so I just wanted to share that's kind of I thought it was interesting that it came up in that um John Data Lori's that it was in the appendix I was like oh well that's uh seems like he likes it so that's (laughs) cool and so and it seems to that it helped me a little bit in Sashin just having read some of it in preparation for this to kind of be patient with myself I guess very important. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talk about 
the patience as a paramita and, and loving kindness, but we always think of that as being other directed, but we've got to direct it towards ourselves. Or we're not going to be able to other direct it very well. So thanks for sharing that. That's uh, I'd forgotten that he lists that uh, as one of the resources uh, in the appendix. That's uh, very delighted to hear that. <laughs> yeah, this is very helpful. Good, good. I um, I had a question, uh, Dean. Um, I was uh, thinking about um, you know just the the general context of. Um, you know, Bausche and uh, his student and, uh, you know, that this is a very uh, skillful way of, uh, of fanning ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the, the question uh, that I have is, I guess, you know, personally, I always have to be careful about, you know, looking towards some system mm -hmm. that you know, eventually is going to lead to, you know, liberation or, you know, shikantazo uh, or one of those kinds of things. So not having that as, as a goal, um, right. but as you were describing more of a, of a practice and a way of life. Right. So I think my question that I'm sort of getting at here is that, um, in, 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 in working with these systems or with this system, that we are perhaps um, directing um, uh, our, our consciousness um, in, in, in certain ways. And I'm wondering how that sort of dovetails with the idea of being um, uh, actualized by the myriad things. Mm. So, so, so this way of, of sort of going about our lives and our experience and directly meeting with whatever it is that's coming up for us versus choosing to uh, focus on a particular thing. Right. Especially since any of the things can, um, uh, you know, lead us all back to the same um, source, so to speak. Right. Um, so I guess I guess uh, as clumsily as I put that question, that is my question. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and that's excellent. I'm glad you raised that because uh, I I hope that my uh, near the end my comments about the fact that the the structure of the Satipatthana Sutra, the system, if you will, is not uh, kind of a hardwired. This is this is it that actually for it to be effective, we need to be able to, to step outside of it and apply it to anything that does arise. It's so that the fact that we do have these directions, specific directions, is to develop the capacity to enter into this moment and to be able to attend to it with regularity. So to do that requires kind of a, a practice, kind of like a musician learning scales and things to be able to then creatively apply that in the Maha realm and to be able to do all kinds of amazing things with it. It's very much the same principle at work here that if we take this kind of open-ended 
Zen approach of just, just sitting and being with what's coming up. Uh, the reality is just, and this is the reason why we start people off by maybe even counting their breath is because we need to kind of gradually work our way into being present with any kind of regularity and being able to attend to this, what's here right now. With our experience of monkey mind, it's like people would get up and leave and say, what are, I mean, what are they talking about? <laughs> How do, you know, we don't work that way. That's gonna be the experience. So without a practice manual, which is really what this is, that, that takes us through steps that can be immediately impactful in our life. So it's a practice manual that we can see benefit from immediately. I know I did. No, no ifs, ands, or buts. I mean, it's, uh, I, I was getting the verification right away. Uh, but the, the most important thing to what you're talking about, the myriad things being able to realize themselves is that we've developed the capacity to now to be present with what's arising and the structure we can start to let go of. We can open our hands to that and just be present with what's arising with that uh, ability to be mindfully aware, to be diligent, clearly knowing those those traits that are essential to the practice they're going to they're going to be vital to us in allowing the myriad things to come forth and realize themselves to become the realized universe so it is very much geared towards that uh that and that's nibbana so when the Theravans are talking about Nibbana, for many, both on their, their side of the fence and our side, you know, we see that is basically pointing to the same thing. It's, it's to awaken, to, to have realization of, of, of things as they are, that the merging of difference and unity, uh, so that our, our sense of self, you know, our, our manas, ego, uh, to, to see ultimately, and this goes into the Dharma realm, the, the fourth set of contemplations, to see how that's being fueled by feelings, by mind. And to see that those things also, though, provide uh, avenues to, to awakening. You know, certainly mind does. I mean, that's essentially what this all comes back down to is, is mental discipline. So that rather than, than being uh, bound literally by the hindrances, you know, we are able to, by following the uh, awakening factors, uh, you know, we're able to access that place, which means as the myriad things arise, they are able to, to become fully realized. But if we're bound by the hindrances, we enter into the experience, you know, with, with our desires, our aversions, our restless monkey mind. You know, we're not, it ain't happening. It ain't happening. Myriad things come up and they just uh, fall into that uh, uh, cycle 
of, of uh, dependent co-arising. The 12-fold chain just keeps, the wheel keeps turning. Just like the proud Marriott's <laughs> ever turning. <laughs> so that's the other thing to connected to the Theravadan teachings is this really is a way to, uh, to, to uh, pull the plug on the wheel is to be able to uh, to not get caught in that cycle. Well, hopefully nobody's been scared off by uh, what an intensive practice this is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I have confidence in all of you. You're going <laughs> to all uh, attain Anyatara Samyak Sambodhi. And <laughs> well, Mark, Mark sure made a run for it, didn't he? <laughs> he did. I noticed that. <laughs> He was the one I was worried about. <laughs> Dean, yes, Jeff. So I, I have read the first uh, chapter or two, and I'm, I'm just wondering. Um, I'm really liking this, and, and wondering if you could give us a little guidance of how do we ease into this as far as the reading and practicing. Um, to me, this is important in the first month to get a real solid foundation of what this is and, uh, and how to begin my practice in this direction. So uh, could you give us some guidance on that? Yeah, no, that, that's a, a great question, uh, especially given the fact that, uh, that we get up to uh, uh, somewhere north of, of page 100. Uh, before, yeah, it's actually page one, uh, one uh, seventeen. Before he he starts discussing mindfulness of the body, uh, and for us, I I think uh, most of us started off our practice of Zen working with the breath. So we've we've had experience with that particular practice. What I kind of would suggest is uh, is just working through the mindfulness of the body more generally speaking and really just staying hanging out there for uh, for for a pretty good stretch of time because that uh, in terms of, since we're already working with, with our breath uh, in, in various ways and to be able to just add into that, you know, the awareness of, of posture 
And again, this isn't just for sitting, but it's very important for sitting. I mean, even those who are doing Shikantaza practice, the, the uh, practice in here about mindfulness of posture is really, you know, any teacher teaching uh, Shikantaza, it has to come back to uh, where you're periodically checking in on your posture. Am I so that you can have the sense of if if you're leaning? Because uh, I know a lot of people, uh, and I, and I see this where there's a tendency to for the head to start to come forward. Uh, you know, during during a long sashin, there's a lot of that that goes on. And that's one of the reasons why people's necks start to suffer. <laughs> it's it's not a good thing. Uh, so posture, but you know. Everywhere you are, just that's the sort of thing you can come back to and direct your attention to your posture and to direct your attention to just uh, kind of like the yoga scans uh, that, that, that are done of, of kind of running through your, your body uh, to be, have that capacity to do that, the awareness of, of the parts of your body, the elements of your body. I mean, I've been working on this in terms of uh, uh, taking a, a great courses class on biology, which is fascinating to me in terms of learning. Uh, the It's really a deep dive into cellular biology and the nuts and bolts of, of the body. And uh, recognizing, yeah, this is a conceptual overlay, but oh my gosh, I mean, you can then kind of have this direct awareness of, of this realization of, of what, what's going on at a cellular level inside of us, what may really makes us up, the, the very basic components, and then add into that all the, uh, all the external life forms that are hitching a ride with us, all the bacteria and stuff. It's like, a whole concept, you talk about dropping off sense of self and substantiality. That's a pretty, pretty neat way to, <laughs> to have that happen. Uh, you know, it's a sort of class where I come away, you know, and, uh, and I just have a, a broad view. I'm not trying to memorize all these organic chemical chains and all that kind of stuff, but uh I don't need to, you know, there's no test for me to take, but just the, the picture it paints. So I've literally been working with mindfulness of the body uh, a considerable amount over the past month or so since I started taking that. Uh, uh, just and that, I, I just throw that out there as an example. And he also, the uh, professor also went through uh, the the, the uh, workings of of the uh, the nervous system and neurons and down to uh, you know the chemical aspects of that. So just to have a general awareness in terms of mindfulness of body, what we really are made up of. So the the Satipatthana Sutra has a description. It's rooted in, in the science of 2000 years ago, which means literally no science at all. Our picture now is so much richer. I think it's, it allows for a deeper engagement with what 
the mindfulness of the body is about, if it's about uh, uh, leading us to an experience of, of no fixed self. Oh my gosh. I mean, the more we study it scientifically, we go, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> Where's a fixed self in the middle of all that, you know, rich uh, interworkings that are at play there. It's, it's just miraculous. It's phenomenal. And then, of course, the, the last uh, of, of the body contemplations, which really uh, you know, led me to get involved with hospice work. Because I, I started working the Satipatthana Sutra independently on my own within the first year of my practice. It became pretty clear to me. Uh, I forget what book you know, Paul was relating uh, finding it in the art of just sitting. I'm not sure where I, I found the reference to it, but it was clear that this is like, this is, <laughs> this is something I need to, to really start doing. So I, I did, and I, I took a pretty deep dive in that uh, practice of, of mindful, aware, mindful awareness of the impermanence, the fact that we are going to perish. And I, uh, made the resolve that, you know, I was already planning my next uh, volunteer venture and said, it needs to be hospice. I need to really practice this. Uh, and that, that became a big part of my life for about the next 12 years then. So I practiced it real deeply, which is, and that had a big impact on me, but that also speaks to what Adelayo talks about in terms of any one of those contemplations within the whole sutra can be the whole deal. And that was an example of one that really pulled at me because like most people, I realized, you know, that's, that's a, a matter that, uh, that causes me some, some dis-ease. Uh, so I, I need to dive into that sucker. And, you know, that's, that's also something that often happens for people when they find the place that they think they need to really go to. It's not that I stopped practicing all the others. I, I didn't stop those. But that was the one that really, I, I need to really immerse in that. I, that's, that's not uncommon. And actually, that's the advantage of having a, a, a disciplined playbook like this. Is it, it's helpful in showing you, oh, this is... <laughs> this is one that this is a step here. I really could uh, uh, could benefit from uh, from doing doing a deep dive into, rather than just kind of if it that's not likely to happen as likely. I don't think if if it's more just open ended, you know, meat water rises, because then what happens is the the things that that. Uh, that create the, the uh, ill at ease, uh, we're more apt to just kind of slough them off. Whereas if it's part of a, a regular uh, program you're following, you can't really, if you do just kind of uh, blow past it, you, you kind of know you're doing that. 
since this is a mindfulness practice to begin with, you better know you're doing that or the mindfulness isn't going very deep for you. <laughs> so, so you're going to, I think, have a better sense of where you need to be because it really kind of directs you. That's the advantage of, of kind of following it step by step. But, but I do think that working with the body there's a reason why that's the first one. That's kind of the one that we, it's a good place to start with. So that's what I would suggest to people is even if you're not up to uh, page 117 in the text and Analayo, you don't have his commentary, you won't need it. It'll help uh, uh, shed some more light on it. Um, not going to say it won't, but but if you just started uh, uh, those sets of practices with the body, I think you'd you'd find some benefit to it. And then when you do get up to page 117, it'll it'll just open it up a little more for you, probably. But that would be my my long-winded uh, <laughs> explanation of, of what you could uh, do now is start with, with the first set of contemplations on the body. But remembering that it is a mindfulness of the body in the body. So it's not about the conceptual overlay. It's try to really drop into. So if it's with the breath, just be the breath. If it's with the posture, be the posture. Like with, with Kinhin is a, is a good example. There's an activity and a posture involved uh, of, of, of just being the Kinhin. Yeah. Forget about all the other overlay. Just be that posture and that activity. Each step forward, just fully be immersed in that step the heel coming down, and the, the foot coming forward, and the uh, other heel then naturally coming up. And as the heel comes up, stepping forward, heel down, rolling forward. And just through the whole course of your kinhin, that's your full mindful awareness is just on that. I was going to um, add um, also that um, I find um, Thich Nhat Hanh especially helpful with um, developing mindfulness practices for us. Yeah. And um, so um, throughout the day, there's there's a lot of um, practices that I do that um, I think help to bring me back from, you know, when I get really caught up, especially, you know, at work or places like that so mm -hmm. you know like there you know there, I use a, a, a chant when I when I wash my hands or my face um, you know which I do several times a day and then there's you know meal chants and he, he had a series of these mindfulness cards that you could actually place like different places in your house like by a light switch or um, when you're opening a window or doing the dishes or whatever it is mm -hmm. um, I have a chant that I developed for um, for when I'm driving, which is when I tend to be either mindless or um, caught up in emotions or caught up in, you know, impatience or whatever it is. Um, so by having these, by having sort of like these places throughout my day where 
Um, I have, you know, this mindfulness chat, it, chant, it kind of brings me back to, um, to, to those things, even if I drift off into sort of mindless activity, um, it, it has a way of sort of um, bringing me back. So I, I find those helpful as well as, of course, you know, um, our practice on the cushion and how we take that off the cushion by being mindful of our breathing, you know, throughout the day or mindful of, mm -hmm. as you were talking about, our posture. Um, and then, you know, various things have a way of kind of um, grabbing the attention of our of our mind. And uh, and so we can fully focus on those and just be with them. Um, so, yeah, there's uh, lots and lots of opportunities for that type of practice. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Good suggestion. Yeah, and speaking of Thich Nhat Hanh, he does have uh, uh, his own translation and commentary to this sutra, uh, published under the title "Transformation and Healing." Good to know. Yeah, because when I first taught it all those years ago, that was probably the most used text. That was before Anilayo or Joseph Goldstein. Uh, and his book, Mindfulness, uh, there wasn't that much uh, available at that time. Now, that was before the mindfulness industry kicked in the full gear. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Huh? Thank you very much. That was uh, exactly what I was looking for, and I feel good about uh, moving into the future now. Good. While good. I'm staying here. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beautiful thing about this practice. We can do it wherever we are. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have, despite what the Buddhist magazines would have you believe with their ads, you don't have to go off to some scenic resort and spend a thousand dollars. You can sit sit in a tiny room in your house and and practice. <laughs> so yeah. All right. Well. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless, I avow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I avow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I avow to enter them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. All right. Well.